Welcome to episode 15 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, a podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And we are just entering into a stretch of first appearance style comics, and joining us once again is the first guest host to ever appear on this series, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. It's almost like it was fate or something for me to be back on this, you know, I was here the first episode, and now we have these number ones, and I was here for Marvel Comics number one, which kind of fits in the same vein as these, but was just on a very different level of the countdown. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, and now we've got Incredible Hulk number one, which was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked, colored, lettered, and edited by people who didn't get credits at the time, cover date May 1962, and release date on or about March 1st of 1962. And as you probably guessed by the episode number, this is number 15 in the countdown. Hulk is one of those characters that, like, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who Hulk really appeals to. And I really like the Hulk as well. But then you get into actual stories about the character, and there are a lot of really rough runs of this character with some really key gem portions of his history that make him who he is. And I think that this issue one kind of encapsulates that because a lot of issue one is really good. Some of it is not so much. And then you have the rest of his initial six-issue minis, uh, not miniseries, but his six-issue series that was canceled. Hulk was canceled after six issues. And um, some of it is really rough reading. So he's, he's just kind of, a, kind of an odd, interesting person. Most characters that you would say this about don't have the staying power that the Hulk seems to have. No, there's not many characters that get canceled after six issues, brought back for new ongoing, and then are never out of print. Right, he is now a mainstay of the Marvel run. There will always be a Hulk comic somehow, somewhere. Yeah, I mean, he's had some very different interpretations and some remarkably different periods, but he's been there in one shape or another. Now, you know this list much better than I do. Um, I've been trying to follow it along, but off the top of my head, I can only think of two other Hulk-centric stories that are on this list. Those being, of course, Planet Hulk and World War Hulk. Yeah, there's ostensibly Incredible Hulk 181, but I think we agreed that wasn't on the list because of the Hulk. <laughs> That's right. That was definitely here for other uh, snickety reasons. Yep. Okay, so yeah, so of all of his stories, the only two that have made it were the two really huge Greg Pak stories from you know the mid-2000s, and that leaves out Peter David's run, that leaves out a lot mm-hmm. of Hulk. It does. Yeah, we've got that. And then Hulk's first appearance, which we might as well quickly synopsize now. So we start off learning that Bruce Banner is a scientist who's in charge of the G-Bomb project, who has refused to confide all the secrets in that G-Bomb in his assistant here. His assistant named Igor, by the way, in the 1960s, that counted as foreshadowing. (laughs) So General Thunderbolt Ross is in charge of the project, and he's got little or no patience for the way Bruce Banner runs it. Although his daughter does, there's definitely a romantic thing going on between Betty Ross and Bruce. Now, Bruce notices that there is, uh, you know, some teenager driving out, driving out onto the bomb site. He asks Igor to delay the countdown so he could save that teenager's life, and Igor chooses not to tell anyone. When Bruce gets out there and saves the life of teenager Rick Jones by throwing him into a safety trench, he takes the full brunt of the G-bomb 
and screams for hours. It's one of the creepiest parts of the story where he's still screaming hours later. Yeah, at that point, he just kind of comes to in the medical bay. And then as night falls, the Geiger counter goes nuts. Bruce Banner turns into the hulking gray monster that the Hulk originally was, who then breaks out of captivity to be pursued by Rick Jones, who's saying, hey, you saved my life, my turn, I'm going to help save you. One of the soldiers who's hunting him down is the one who actually names him the Hulk. Hulk goes in and, you know, Igor is trying to find Bruce Banner's secret formula in his base, and Hulk makes short work of his gun, thrashes the guy around, they find the top secret gamma report. We know the Hulk hates Bruce Banner and doesn't really recognize the connection, and then as the sun comes up, he changes back. And the investigation continues. Meanwhile, Igor, who's now in prison, is sending a message to his comrades through his thumbnail shortwave radio. I wish I had a thumbnail shortwave radio that one time I was in jail. Yeah, except it would be microwaves because there's to produce waves of a given size, you need an amplitude or an antenna of comparable size. But anyway, so he sends that message to the gargoyle, who is a Russian agent who is feared, incredibly intelligent, but also physically misshapen. They end up capturing the Hulk and trying to make him the gargoyle's slave, although when they're sending him to the other side of the world, he turns back into Bruce Banner because that's now daytime. And Bruce is able to use gamma rays to cure the physical defects in the gargoyle, even if it makes him far less intelligent, but he has to do that, curses the Russian leadership, and sends Bruce Banner and Rick Jones back home while sacrificing his own life to kill some of the Russians who've essentially kept him prisoner for the sake of his brilliant mind. And he's decided that communism is wrong because it was Bruce Banner who cured his physical attributes. And he switches to the side of quote-unquote good. Quote-unquote. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting combination of story ideas. Because uh, you have the origin story for three... It was divided into chapters, which I have to think about in a second. But then you have this out-of-nowhere communist monster plot. It's like combining two different genres into one. <laughs> and um, it sits all together a little disjointedly, I think. Yeah, it's not as smooth a transition as one would hope. There are some interesting elements to the origin. There's actually something in here, which is one of the things I love about Daredevil, and it's true of only three of Marvel's heroes. And that is that, in this case, Bruce Banner or the Hulk was a hero before he got his powers. Mm. He was a good man doing good things before he had his situation. Yeah, he and Daredevil is one of my favorite characters, and this is one of the reasons why they both got their powers in accidents that were caused by them trying to save the lives of others to begin with. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, good, yes. Yeah, it wasn't one of the guys who stumbles into powers and says, okay, I should become a hero now. Right? This is a case of, there's a kid out there who's about to get blown to smithereens, I need to go save his life. Who's the third in your mind? Captain America. That's what I thought you were going to say. And we'll have a chance to talk about that in a couple of episodes. We will. Yeah, I really like that. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but I do really like that. Have you read Marvel Comics The Untold Story? I have, yes. Do you have any insights to, to uh, mention? I have some ideas about where the idea of the Hulk came from and how this sort of came about. But do you remember any parts from that book? It's been a while since I read it, but the, the main idea for the origin for the Hulk was that Stanley kept trying to challenge himself to come up with characters that people didn't like. 
when he came up with Tony Stark as Iron Man, it was in an era where military industrialists were the bad guys. And he was trying to to show that he was a talented writer by making a military industrialist that people liked and sympathized with. With the Hulk, his goal was to make the bad guy the lead of the book. And there was restrictions on the Comic Code Authority for how much of a bad guy the Hulk could become. But it was a combination of Frankenstein's monster when you're playing with science that you don't really understand and can't control, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that he pulled together to create this. Now, if listeners do not know the connection between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, track down that book, which is now in the public domain and can be found for free legally online in multiple places, such as Project Gutenberg. Read it as soon as possible, because the source material is actually a mystery story where one of Dr. Jekyll's friends is trying to determine the link between the two. If you don't want to know what that link is, well, before you get spoiled by pop culture in general, track down the book and read it. It's good. I've actually never read the actual original story. The notion of Dr. Nicholas Mr. Hyde is one of those cultural American mythos kind of things we just have in our brains, but I've never actually read the original story. Yeah, when they, it was because of the movies. When they adapted it to film, instead of making it suspense, they made it horror mm. and spoiled the ending in the first 10 minutes. I see. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting choice. And now every time the story is told, it's done that way. Which I don't yep. think you can put the genie back in that bottle. I think now every time you have to tell that story, you're going to have to do it as a elimination of the suspense. Yeah, because it's just one of those stories where people know, you know, that this is the connection. It would be a little bit, a little bit like trying to make a Superman movie where the audience is also in the dark that he's Clark Kent. It would be, yeah. I mean, because the audience is just not in the dark about that. This is 1962, end of 1961 when they're writing it probably, which is, they don't know it's toward the end, but it is toward the end of this era of monster mags. This uh, science fiction is a really loose appellation we can put on it. Uh, suspense stories, alien invasions, monsters of the month, um, lots of comic book covers of people running in fear from some random visual creation that Kirby or Ditko or one of the various other artists has come up with. And so the idea, I think, of taking one of those monster ideas and turning him into a protagonist for an ongoing as part of Lee's... I mean, Lee has recently made the Fantastic Four number one, where he was trying to make a superhero comic that does all the things that he thinks superhero comics should do that they've never done. And so doing that with the Monster Mag, I think, was, was, was a pretty ingenious idea. It's definitely laudable and, and, a, and a, a worthy effort here. And the rise of all these you know, hero protagonists in Marvel's stable is actually sounding the death knell of the Monster Mag market. Within the next five years, they'll be all but gone from Marvel's publication. And the Hulk will be the only one left. And he's much more of a superhero character as time goes along. I mean, he's still a monster, but it's not anything like the same vein of the other stories that are being published. No, it doesn't take long before this, making the bad guy that the hero. It's more, well, as we said in the recap in this story, Bruce Banner became the Hulk at night. He was originally gray, although they couldn't get consistent gray coloring on the page. So starting with issue two, he became green with no explanation. And it takes a while. Through this entire six-issue miniseries, the rules keep changing for what turns him into a Hulk. And by and large, it's when Bruce Banner irradiates himself with gamma rays and makes the transformation happen one way or the other. Yeah, he's actually choosing to be the Hulk and choosing to become Bruce Banner again. The yep. you know, For the latter half of this series, four, five, and six, that's kind of what's going on. 
And that's the rule when the story is canceled. And whenever he comes back in Avengers and Astonish, he still has that transformation machine. One of the first things that happens then is that he destroys it and the changes become uncontrollable again. This is also with the whole gamma bomb being part of the origin. It's worth noting that this is at the height of our nuclear stockpiling. We, at this point, have some 30,000-plus nuclear warheads in our arsenal, uh, which is the highest point we ever reached over the course of that mad rush to make weapons. So using that very present-in-the-mind-of-the-reader idea as the source of your origin, I mean... Yes, radioactive spider for Spider-Man and cosmic. There's other radiation stories out there, but this is an actual bomb test that is turning Banner into the Hulk. Yeah, and this is one of the first that uses gamma radiation. And we've gone from the cosmic rays we'll discuss more next week with the Fantastic Four directly to this. So radiation very much was the scary bugaboo of science at this point. I like to have the you know you have the whole desert set up and people stationed you know miles away to watch the 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 fallout and everything. It's 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 definitely appealing to cultural ideas of the day. And the story is structured also in a sort of archaic fashion. DC at the time, whenever they wanted to make a comic book story that filled the entire book, they would still leave their stories in the chapter structure and page count structure that the book was used to. So if you had a 24-page story, you were still broken up into three eight-page chapters, roughly. And so Marvel sort of followed suit with the structure here. They, they have five chapters in this story, and the page count of each chapter roughly follows of what would be the page count of the individual monster stories. A couple of them are longer with five or seven pages. A couple of them are shorter with three to five pages. And that's just what they would do. They would have some longer and shorter stories all mixed together in one book. Because in 1962 and 3 and, and 1, full-length stories just wasn't the standard expectation from comics at the time. No. And that had been dating back to the 30s when individual issues were much larger. Typically 68 pages or 96 pages in some cases, rather than the 24 to 32 that had come out. So I've often wondered if that early chapter structure was a relic of the old advertising days where you'd have the complete story then insert your ads, and then have a complete story, and then insert your ads. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later on when they started mixing the ads in between the pages of the chapters of the stories that they also dropped the chapter labels. Right. And, you know, having full-length novels was much, much, much more impressive when you had all 64 pages in your comic. (laughs) So issues of All Flash and Green Lantern Quarterly that took the entire book those were some pretty impressive length stories, and they did take a long time to read. And the word novel length, well, still wasn't really very precise, but certainly felt more accurate back then. But even then, they were still doing the, well, normally we do four 13-page stories in 64-page comics, so we'll have a story that has four 13-page chapters. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of been the thing over um, ever since then. It just didn't really happen very much anymore. So those are my thoughts on kind of like, you know, the background and structure of the story. So Betty Ross is in this story, and you can tell there's a little bit of an attraction from her to him and from him to her. They don't really make that an official romance until toward the end of the run, but you can tell that that, that that's going on. My question is, why is she present at 
the nuclear test site. She's not allowed to talk because he's like, this is man talk. So I'm just wondering, army? Yes. Scientists? Yes. Random chick? Why, why is she there? I don't know. The official detonations were sometimes more open to the public than others. One of the most horrible parts of the Manhattan Project history is that the military leader in charge knew which members of the U.S. Senate supported the project and which ones didn't. So when it came time for the first test bomb and the members of the Senate and Congress were invited to a witness this top-secret project, he actually created a seating plan where those who opposed the project were seated within the minimum safety zone. <laughs> it was, yeah. Wow. The, uh, it was a very dark day in terms of American military choices. Is it like putting people in the front row at the Gallagher concert? Uh, yeah, a little bit worse. There were... There were bad things that happened. There's a st- statistically significant increase in cancer rates amongst those people. Mm. So, you know, and that was part of his plan. Well, let's see what happens to people in this, because that's got to be part of our long-term testing, and we're not allowed to test on people deliberately. That official test is going to be when we drop it on the other guys. But, hey, let's see what happens with these guys. So, because it's a test day, it may be more open to people with lower security credentials to make this happen. So it's still very iffy why Betty's there. She would need to have some kind of day job that would put her there, whether it's in politics or whatnot. But even then, I I don't see why she's in that room unless Thunderbolt Ross is just abusing his authority to bring her with him. Which I would believe, except he really doesn't seem to like having her there. No. <laughs> He doesn't seem to like her having any contact with Bruce Banner whatsoever because he could tell that there's a budding romance there and does not approve. And let's face it, it, it's couched in 60s slang, but he's basically homo-shaming Bruce Banner throughout all this, calling him terms that are very, you know, related to calling someone gay as an insult. And I wasn't entirely cool with that while I was reading the comic again. (laughs) No, I would agree with that, which is... I mean, he is definitely set up as the antagonist, and I think Stanley was doing that deliberately, because I remember when the press releases came out and Northstar came out of the closet, and there was an interview with Stan Lee asking, you know, what do you think of having, you know, the first openly gay character, a Marvel character, given your history with Marvel? He was shocked that he was treated as the first openly gay character, because he always treated Percival Pinkerton from Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos as gay in his mind, and he realized that the reason that being discredited to North Star is because in, you know, but 80 issues of that comic, the fact that Percival Pinkerton was gay just never mattered enough to show up on the page. Interesting. So I think Stan Lee is, you know, very open to accepting homosexuals based on that interview and the way he's treating it. I just think, you know, that was a common mindset. And he's saying, okay, we've got this stodgy stick in the mud antagonist here. Let's give him this attitude. I like that perspective. I really do, actually. Because Ross really is just a big jerk throughout all this with with no redeeming characteristics. And it does give Bruce Banner a consistent thorn in his side that is, you know, has varying levels of importance to the story at hand over the course of the six issues. Of course, by the time you get to the Tales to Astonish run, he his pursuit of the Hulk is one of the mainstays of the story. But But yeah. I don't like him here. <laughs> no, yeah, he. it's not present here, of course, but as we get into especially the Tales to Astonish era, the Hulk becomes his Moby Dick <laughs> to Thunderbolt Ross's Captain Ahab. Now, we get almost nothing about Bruce Banner 
as a person outside of these events as far as a history and everything. Basically, nothing is said. And yet, that empty canvas would be used as a backdrop for, you know, a huge amount of paint and extrapolation in addition to the to the story over the course of the run. I think it was in the 70s that we established that he was an abused child, and, and then in the Peter David run, they took the whole psyche of Bruce Banner and did new stuff with it. On the other hand, Rick Jones does come on saying he has no past, he has no future, so he's out there just doing whatever, doesn't really care. Yeah, we should mention that he was on the test site on a dare. Yeah, just from his friends. Like, hey, bet you won't go out. I don't think he realized it was a test day. I think it was oh, no. just, you know, go hang out on the test site and be cool. Like, like go, go to the haunted house. You're not going into the haunted house because you're actually expecting a monster to get you. You're going to the haunted house because it's cool to be brave. Yeah, yeah, and that's where Rick Jones is. So it's... Yeah, we do get a little bit of his background, as you mentioned, where you find out that he really, he's effectively an orphan, which is good. It explains why this teenager basically becomes Bruce Banner's adopted child. Mm -hmm. And then becomes many other things after that. I said he has no future, but at the same time, he kind of has all the futures. Yeah, he's a character that, it's almost like the Marvel writers liked him, but didn't really know what to do with him. So he became a variety of different things in the Marvel Universe over the next few decades. I do like him as Captain Marvel. To me, that's kind of who he is. They play with him with the whole Bucky idea in the early issues of Avengers that have Captain America, but that only ever mm-hmm. solidifies for like five seconds. I think it's literally three issues around the 116, you know, um, Starenko part. But to me, Rick Jones is Captain Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. And to new readers, he might be A-bomb to... So yeah, to 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 Keenan especially, he's a bomb because that's where he is on the cartoon. Yep, Keenan being John's son, of course. Yeah, I have a six year old, almost seven when we're recording. He uh, Hulk and the Agents of Smash. Keenan loves it, and Lily hates it. And I'm kind of ambivalent on it, but okay with it enough to watch it. It's very smashy and actiony without being very deep at all. I prefer the Avengers Ultimate Spider-Man cartoons. Okay. Yeah. So those are, I think, all the main characters from the stories. There was one moment whenever he bursts into a room. I'm looking at page nine. He uh, smashes into the science lab and Igor starts shooting at him. And I just, as I was reading it, I was thinking of a George Reeves entrance, but like turned into a nightmare because he comes in, he takes some bullets and doesn't care. He grabs the gun, he smashes it. And it's just like all the same beats that a, a, a classic Superman episode would hit, but it's the Hulk. Yeah. Yep, and then he, of course, picks up Igor and just starts throwing him around. Like, why would I want to be human? So this is where we're starting to see the dichotomy where the Hulk seems to hate his alternate self. Which is a neat way to play it. It's it's kind of the reluctant heroes. The reluctant heroes idea, Stan really got a lot of mileage out of the reluctant heroes idea. From Spider-Man to Daredevil to the X-Men. I mean, Daredevil's Mm -hmm. heroism notwithstanding, but the fact that he was blind was certainly something he was not exactly wanting. Uh-huh. Yeah, he really liked the whole reluctant heroes thing. That's kind of what early Marvel is made out of. Yeah, very much so. And it worked. I mean, if anything, this is kind of setting that pattern. If we look at the significance and impact this had on the industry, in terms of character creation history, well, Hank Pym was created shortly before the Fantastic Four, but he clearly wasn't thought of as a hero then. If you go back to his first appearance, it's just a one-off sci-fi story. And it was only when Fantastic Four hit huge that I think they said, okay, we need to start creating 
other heroes, the Atom is doing well at DC. Let's take this character that we've already created and turn him into an Atom-style hero. Because he first appeared in Tales to Astonish 27 and doesn't come back until 35. Right, and eight months is a long time in 60s comics. Yeah, and we go from there, really, after Fantastic Four, the Hulk is next in line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whenever we did our Avengers Inspirations podcast, Hulk number one is where we started because of all the characters to get Marvel. He was the first uh, Marvel movie treatments. So aside from that Astonish 27, which was kind of our zero episode. Uh, yeah, so this is this is definitely a really important place in the industry, and we kind of focus on the origin of the characters because I don't know the little person who hates the his his physical situation and works for the yeah the gargoyle yeah the gargoyle. I mean, it's more than just you know dwarfism. He does have a pretty wretched face too. His whole storyline is just kind of eh. there. There's yeah. so many logic fails too. Like, why does the gargoyle even care about the Hulk? He says, the Hulk is the only one whose power could come close to matching mine. And I'm like, in what possible way does the Hulk's power have anything to do with yours? And what kind of power do you have that he's coming close to matching? And and, and instead of using his Soviet might to, to go after the Hulk, he just flies over there. I'm just going to fly to Arizona in a rocket because I, because I can. And I'm going to attack the Hulk with my small self. To be fair, though, he actually does win. He he captures the Hulk. Yeah, it it's fairly weak. It it takes a while for Hulk to get a good villain. I think the leader is his first good villain, and a really good flip side actually, where you've you know the Hulk starts off as the incredibly intelligent but not very physical man who becomes the unintelligent but incredibly physical Hulk. Whereas Sam Stearns was the unintelligent physical laborer who got exposed to gamma rays and becomes the super intelligent but not very physical leader. Trying to think in those six issues, is Tyrannus the only one that has any staying power? I think so. I don't believe we heard from the Toad Man ever again. No. <laughs> Although, probably I would have had the same expectation from the Scrolls reading that, but the Scrolls did manage to come back in some cool ways. The Toad Man didn't have the shape-shifting thing. It's like the Scrolls without the shape-shifting. Um, so they're just random slimy aliens. Yeah. But yeah, I would say that Tyrannus is the only one that really lasts. I mean, probably the next one up is the Space Phantom, and we barely see him. Although, Englehart, I think, did some really cool stuff with the Space Phantom and the Avengers. Yeah, as did Dwayne McDuffie in the Beyond miniseries. Okay. So he he's cropped up once or twice, but yeah, the Space Phantom is probably, you know, best or primarily remembered as the villain that caused the Hulk to quit the Avengers. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not even a Hulk villain, that's an Avengers villain. Yeah, but he just, of all the Avengers, he had a bigger impact on the that's Hulk's true, yeah. future than anyone else. But yeah, so listeners at home, if you know the characters from the movies, the Hulk's own series lasted six issues. The fan mail started coming in from exactly the market that Stanley was trying to reach. So even though it wasn't selling well, it was selling to the right people. So they tried bringing him back by sticking him in the Avengers. So he was, you know, he was one of the guys who started, was founding the team in issue one. We'll go through that in more detail in a few weeks' time. He quits the team at the end of issue two, fights against the team in issue three, and then spins off into his own stories and tales to astonish, where he is the backup feature behind the Ant-Man, Giant-Man lead feature. Mm -hmm. And all of that takes quite a bit of time, from issue six of The Incredible Hulk to The Avengers number one. That's quite a span of time. And then over the course of those first two Avengers issues, they were bi-monthly. So that's also a bit of a stretch. And between the Avengers number five, I think, was his last 
encounter with the Avengers for a while until Tales of Sunshine number 61. That's also several months to a year. So it's the Hulk is off the shelves for a while. He's kind of like Namor that he keeps showing up, but he's not a thing for, for, you know, two or three years. Yeah. Because as we said, this would have come out some point between Tales to Astonish 27 and 35. I haven't tracked on the exact publication dates to be sure. And then Hulk's next regular ongoing is, as John said, it kicks off with Tales to Astonish 60 and continues from there. So he is there for a while. As we said, originally as a backup to Ant-Man and then eventually Hank Pym's stories go away and uh, Namor takes over the lead in the book. <laughs> so the Hulk is playing backup fiddle to two characters who rarely have their own series nowadays. <laughs> yep. But when Marvel's publication contracts changed and they could take these split books and make two different books of them, Hulk's the one that got to keep the numbering. Hulk kept the numbering. Namor got an, a series that, you know, lasted a respectable 68, I want to say, issues. That sounds right. And, um, of course, Ant-Man has come and gone in publication. He's He's honestly has the publication history that I would expect something like the Hulk to have. To just come up every now and then when someone has a new idea, and he'll run for a year or two and then fade away again. But of course, like I said at the beginning, the Hulk has had the staying power. Even whenever the the stories haven't been the most enjoyable, they keep on going every month. That they do. And it probably helps that he was one of the first Marvel heroes to be adapted into a live-action TV series, as well as one of the first to be adapted into animation. When Marvel came up with the Marvel Superheroes five-day-a-week cartoon with a different hero each day, the Hulk was in that rotation. Mm-hmm. With that classic Doc Bruce banner belted by gamma rays turns into the Hulk any young glamour is. Yeah, that song. <laughs> yeah, that one. Wrecking the town with the power of a bull, he's no monster sure. Who is as lovable as ever-loving Hulk? Hulk, 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 Hulk. Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> there are other songs that are much more catchy. <laughs> actually, you know, the only song of that series I actually really like is the Captain America song. Yep. Yeah, when he throws his mighty shield, anyone who poses a shield must yield. Mm-hmm. That one. Yep. Okay, so, yeah, his um his changing in this issue is, is timed with the day and the night. Like you said earlier, they will play with that. One of the cool things about the six-issue mini is that Lee did not leave a status quo. It, the, the Hulk was in an ever-changing state of flux. And I, I, I understand when people complain about that, but I actually like it. I feel like it's, it gives a sort of organic feel to the storyline, that this guy's been hit by radiation, and he's changing into a monster, but every time they think they understand why he's going to change into a monster, the mutations you know, mutate. Yep. Until they realize that to have an ongoing series, you kind of have to have a set rule. So in the Astonish, at first it's every time he gets excited, he turns to the Hulk. And then when he gets excited again, he turns back into Bruce Banner. And then they realize that doesn't make any sense. So it's getting excited becomes the Hulk and calming down becomes Bruce Banner. Yeah. And then that sticks for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's basically the rule for decades. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how much more there is to say about the plot. I mean, in terms of the impact on the industry and the significance this kicks off the Hulk. It proves that Fantastic Four wasn't a complete fluke, although this wasn't as successful as successful enough that they kept going with superheroes. And, I mean, it just all stems from here, anything Hulk-related. And Hulk is one of those characters prior to almost the superhero movie Renaissance with Iron Man in 2007, right? In the year 2000, if you were to ask people on the street to name Marvel superheroes, 
Hulk and Spider-Man would probably be the first two they could come up with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because of the Bill Bixby Hulk series that was live action from the 70s into the 80s. Which had a great format for staying as a series, even though it didn't really evoke very much from the comics. They found the way to take the idea of the Hulk, the basic bare bones idea, and do something very different with him. I have a feeling if it were made now, it would not be successful. No, and it was... I believe it was Kenneth Johnson who adapted it for TV. He actually, because the Hulk was essentially a rage monster, he wanted to change the Hulk's color to red. And they wouldn't allow that because it wasn't that faithful. But there's other changes they made. You know, we talked about the homophobic tone of General Ross prior to this. When they're making the movie, the name Bruce had apparently homosexual overtones. That was the association people made with it. And they didn't want that associated with their TV series. So they renamed him David which was later integrated as the name of Bruce's father. Yeah. In the comics. I've ever, I, I, I've said the name Bruce with a bit of a lispy accent a few times. But at the same time, Bruce Wayne is Batman, so yeah. he's, you know. But I guess 1960s Batman is kind of a gay-friendly show as well. Yep, and there were all the accusations in the Wortham Trials about the relationship between Batman and Robin as well, but... Yeah. The one other thought I had about this before we start closing up and doing and, and moving on to the to the other segments, how intentional do you think it was that the Hulk is essentially Golden Age Superman with an anger issue? I mean, even down to learning how to fly leap in the third issue. I mean, the, the original Golden Age Superman was in, you know impervious to bullets, could leap an eighth of a mile, and was really strong. And that's the Hulk. Yeah, it was also a lot of other characters at this point. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, we do know that later on Thor was created because they were looking for a Superman killer and something specifically to compete with Superman, which Stanley was resistant to. He wanted more grounded characters and less powerful characters than that. With the Hulk, you've got the whole psychology aspect. So, you know, becoming this powerful Hulk is not necessarily a good thing because of the anger issues. When he was specifically directed to come up with a Superman killer, he's like, okay, who are we going to come up with to compete with someone who's got the power of a god. I know, how about an actual god? But I don't have any interest in writing that myself. So, hey, Brother Larry, come here. Here's the concept for Thor as a superhero. Go write the script. So this may or may not have been part of that same era where there's pressure from the owner of Marvel Comics to come up with a Superman-style character because, hey, he's the biggest selling superhero in the market right now. So let's copy that. Because copying trends is what the owner of Marvel at the time was really good at. Okay. And you mentioned that other characters were like that now. I realize that a lot of the characters that are being published then are no longer in publication now, but you're right, it probably was not that uncommon a power set to make somebody strong and impervious to stuff. I mean, it's, that's why the original Superman was that. <laughs> yeah, there's that and the Speedsters were probably the two most common power sets of the Golden Age because there were probably a good half dozen super Speedsters in the Golden Age as well. You know, and not just things like the Flash, but the Silver Streak and a number of others. Well, from here, we'll move on to the section of the podcast I have so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. They will be well into the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation at this point in their movie-by-movie and episode-by-episode coverage of every Star Trek ever. This is the part where we look for messages, morals, and meanings. So are there any morals and meanings that we think Stan Lee was trying to promote with this? You, you, you definitely have the man versus himself kind of thing going on here. Bruce Banner 
has been thrust into a very uncontrollable, untenable lifestyle. He is no longer in control of our hardly anything to do with his life. And, you know, he, he holds up relatively well, but the only basic point of trying to be a real person that we see in this particular issue is he and Rick go driving around, which is kind of a questionable decision because they know that he's probably going to turn to the Hulk at night and it's nighttime when they're driving. So sure, if I might lose control of my body, I want to operate heavy machinery. But yeah, that whole man versus self thing is is a big part of it. It is. I mean, you could read all in also that, you know, nice guys finish last because that's kind of the situation that got Bruce into this in the first place was going out to try and help someone. So right. I don't think that was a message that Stanley wanted to get across. I think that just happened. Bruce is kind of a nice guys finish last kind of guy because you have the man's man, Thunderbolt Ross. And his daughter is very much interested in the guy that is everything that Thunderbolt's Ross, Thunderbolt Ross does not admire in men. We could probably interpret some like daughter rebellion into that if we wanted to. I don't know if that story's ever been done in the comics as far as why she was attracted to Bruce, but it's um, different things being valued in men is, is, you know, it's kind of a theme through the issue because you have Ross who's, you know, the army general, and you have Banner, you have Rick Jones, who's doing stuff on a dare, which is another, you know, male trope. And then you have Gargoyle, whose whole thing at the end of the issue is, I'm a man now. And, um, and wrestling with the fact that he's, you know, was a monster before. So it's, that's, that's interesting running theme through the story is what, what it means to be a man and how different people interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the definition of masculinity. So. That's about it. Now, normally after the deeper meanings, we move on to why it landed at this point in the rankings, but I realize now that we forgot to discuss our personal stories of how we first got exposed to Incredible Hulk number one. Oh, dear. So, yeah. I mean, in my case, when Marvel first started putting out the Masterworks volumes in the early 1990s, they had the Marvel Masterworks edition single issue reprints with a higher page or a higher price point to demonstrate the quality of paper and coloring that there would be in these. And my friends and I were collecting those and we were taking turns buying them because they were more pricey so we could all read them and figure out all these origin stories. And it was my turn to pick up Incredible Hulk. So that's how I first read this. It was back in the early 90s in that reprint. How about you, John? I'm trying to think. I did not read this as a child. It must have been, as, I, as I've said on previous issues, my, my comics, my current comics interest dates back to 2008 with the Iron Man film. And I think I remember that in late 2008, early 2009, I wanted to sit out and read the entire Marvel universe, starting with the Fantastic Four number one and moving forward. Because, you know, you can get those collected and there were the Get Corp DVDs and all sorts of other ways to read those stories. And I'm pretty sure that was my first experience with the original six-issue run of the Hulk. And it was an eye-opening experience. But I don't think I ever read any early Hulk stuff, or maybe even any Hulk stuff, before that. Certainly, I'd seen the show when I was a kid, and the Ang Lee movie, I had seen that. But as far as actually reading Hulk comics, I'm pretty sure that was the first. Okay. And I've read them with my son, I've read them with my daughter, because we read comics at night. Yeah. All right, so why do we think it landed at this point in the tournament? Oh, I don't think there's any real mystery to that. We have all the, we have a slew of number ones here that really have to be on this list. 
because of their impact on the industry. Hulk, Fantastic Four, Captain America, Avengers, Amazing Fantasy 15 is coming up. Marvel Comics number one was early in the list. These kind of have to be on the list. I'm actually surprised we don't have more first appearance issues of random people like Journey to Mystery 83 and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tales of Suspense 39 with Iron Man. Right. So the Hulk is the Hulk. And he's a hugely important, very popular character from the films. Everyone is clamoring for a solo Hulk film. Um, his presence or absence from the Avengers franchise of films is charted with, with you know, undying devotion. It's like, what is, what, is, what is his fate at the end of Age of Ultron mean? Is it possible that this will become something else? You know, some other story people speculate. So he's very popular right now in the moviegoer mind. So putting his first origin story, which is a pretty good origin for the 60% of the comic that is the origin, is very important. Yeah, we actually get some excellent reasons for Bruce Banner to be exposed to the gamma radiation. It's not just, oh, you know, radioactive vial falls off passing truck that we get in Daredevil. Or the, oh, spider just happened to jump off and bite him. Yeah, after it just happened to go through the radiation blast. like These aren't quirks of fate that are done for the purpose of creating a character. This is, you know, well, obviously, every story is done for the purpose of creating a character. But ostensibly, within the, within the fiction, this is a person doing what person is supposed to be doing, and it turns them into a monster. Yeah, I mean, the only part of this that's a coincidence is that this just happens to be the day and time that Rick Jones gets the dare. Right. But that is a much more plausible coincidence than some of the ones that come up in some of the other stories. So, yeah, I think that's it. Because, you know, if we look at the entertainment value, as 60s origin comics go, it's fairly entertaining. But as John has pointed out, it kind of changes its mind about what it wants to be when you're 60% of the way through it. The importance to continuity is here in spades with the creation of the Hulk. And the messages and meanings that come out of the Hulk, a lot of the themes that people associate with the Hulk, don't develop until the Tales to Astonish era where the Hulk's transformations get tied to his anger. So that's not really what we've got here. I think it really is just straight up, hey, first Hulk, it goes on the list, Mm -hmm. regardless of the quality of the interior pages. Although its placement on the list probably has some impact from the quality of the interior pages. I mean, after all, it is a good 15 spots higher than Incredible Hulk 181. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's, like I said, it's, it's an enjoyable read. And even the, the backup is not terrible by 60s Marvel standards. It's just, you know, once Stan Lee had this character, he didn't really know what to do with him. No. No, I almost feel like that experimentation and changing the status quo is Stan Lee trying to figure out what's going to work for this guy. And it doesn't come until later. So did you have any closing thoughts on Incredible Hulk number one? Probably would just be rehashes of everything I've said before. It's worth reading. If you have never actually sat down and read it, it's worth going out and finding a copy of through the Unlimited app, through the uh, getting a copy of the GetCorp DVD that has his whole first, I don't know, I think it goes up through 99 of the third volume or something. It does, yeah. It's worth getting. Yeah, it goes from Incredible Hulk number one, skips from this six-issue series to Tales to Astonish. It does not include the Avengers issues. And then it's got every issue of the Incredible Hulk until you're about halfway through Planet Hulk. But to be clear, you don't really need those Avengers issues. It's not like there's a narrative through line. No. When he starts up in the Astonish 61, it's just Tuesday for the Hulk. Yeah. All right. So for those of you who are reading along at home, next week we are going to be dealing with Fantastic Four number one. 
which is reprinted in Fantastic Four Annuals, numbers 1 and 7, Marvel Masterworks Volume 2, Fantastic Four Volume 1, Marvel Milestone Edition, Fantastic Four Number 1, Origins of Marvel Comics, Essential Fantastic Four Number 1, 100 Gravest Marvels of All Time Number 9, The Unstable Molecules Trade Paperback, The Best of the Fantastic Four Hardcover, Fantastic Four Omnibus Volume 1, Maximum Fantastic Four Hardcover, as well as being available on Comixology, a couple of Gatecorp DVD ROMs, because there was one Fantastic Four release for the original movie and a Fantastic Four Silver Surfer combo release for the sequel, and it's also on Marvel Digital Unlimited. So for 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time, the previous list was number 9, and now it's number 15. I wonder. I would have, I, I'm actually going to be comparing those lists here in the near future to see what changed. All right. So, uh, John, thanks again for joining us. Why don't you tell people where they can find your stuff? Okay. Well, Avengers Inspirations is a podcast with my daughter about various Marvel movie characters. We have not talked about the Hulk for a while, although we have recently hit the debut of the Avengers series itself, so he is present there. Also recently, a monthly podcast, the last day of each month. If you like Silver Age and you like DC, the giant Superman podcast comes out once a month with a giant episode talking about a giant Superman annual. So I do that with Bob Fisher as we're recording the first episodes up. The second episode will be hitting on February 29th. So that should be there by the time you're hearing this. And yeah, lots of fun looking back at classic Superman stories from one of the high points of his publication history as in the form of the collections that DC published called the Giant Annuals. So that's at giantsuperman.libson.com. Okay. All right. And so those of you who are listening at home, please feel free to rate and review this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can join our Facebook discussion forum to talk about the stories that have shown up in this podcast. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay. I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be, because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not the Teen Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently... Or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe? Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? 
New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!